Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Cathy Pilgrim, the Assistant Director-General of the Executive and Public Programs Division here at the Library. As we begin tonight, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call our home. I'm delighted to see so many of you here tonight, out in the winter weather, to hear from Michael Robotham as he speaks about his new novel, The Secrets She Keeps. At the age of 11 years old, Michael wrote to American author Ray Bradbury and received a reply, including four of Bradbury's books that weren't available in Australia. Michael, do you still have that letter? I do. You do? <laughs> It was this generosity that encouraged Michael to be a writer. Michael's work has been praised by Stephen King and in 2015 he was awarded the Gold Dagger by the Crime Writers Association of the UK for Best Crime Novel for the Year for the gripping thriller Life or Death. Before coming, becoming a novelist, Michael was an investigative journalist working across America, Australia and Britain. He investigated notorious case, cases such as that of serial killers Fred and Rosemary West. He has also worked with clinical and forensic psychologists as they helped police investigate complex, psychologically driven crimes. The Secret She Keeps tells the story of two women from different backgrounds who both have secrets. Their lives are about to collide in the most dramatic way and nothing will ever be the same again. Last night, or should I say very early this morning, I finished reading The Secret She Keeps. I kept telling myself just one more chapter, but I couldn't bring myself to turn the light off until I had read it all. So to find out more about this thrilling story, Michael is joined by dear library friend and ABC Triple Sixes Louise Ma. Many of you know Louise and we all enjoy her passion for telling true stories about real people. So please join me in, in welcoming Michael and Louise tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Cathy. Yes, I do enjoy making true stories about real people, but I love reading fiction, and I'm a massive fan of Michael, so it's a great pleasure for me to be here tonight. Um, just before we kind of kick off, have any 11-year-olds written to you yet? I do. I, I do get... Um, I get a lot of mail, yeah. and the ones I always respond to are the ones from children and the ones from people with Parkinson's or people caring for people, because the long-running series obviously features a character who has Parkinson's, so I get a lot of mail. Um, I can't respond to everyone, but I do like to respond. I'm saying that, I just have visions of people ringing, sending me letters saying, where are the free books, Yes, where Michael? are my books? <laughs> <laughs> where are my books? I would like to think... Um, it's really interesting, that Ray Bradbury story, because when he... Uh, you know, sadly, I was planning to see him uh, when we, you know, we finally touched base, and he read... I wrote, I wrote about... You know that that generosity in in a magazine article, and and about a week in America, and, and a week later, I had an email from Alexandra Bradbury, his youngest daughter, uh, and I had no idea Ray was still alive. And she said, "My father is 91 years old and now completely blind, but I wanted you to make you know, I wanted you to know that you made an old man cry." Oh, that's um, so beautiful. And he wanted you to know that you are his son. 
<laughs> and uh, I sent him all the audiobooks. Uh, and we made great plans that when I got to America on my next tour, that I would go, when I got to LA, that we would have dinner or lunch together. And he died about two weeks before I arrived. I'm so sorry. And um, which is very sad. But what stunned me was the reaction, because I mean, a lot of people think that Ray Bradbury was, uh, I know he's very famous for Fahrenheit 451. And, and, um, and that's his, without doubt, his most famous book. But he, he was really a short story writer. And, and many of the early episodes of The Twilight Zone were based on Bradbury's short stories, which I think what, that's what attracted me most to him when I was, uh, when I was 11. Um, but suddenly when he died, people were writing stories. And it wasn't just me. There were, I mean, Neil Gaiman wrote and Steven Spielberg and Joanna Harris, who wrote Chocolat and... All of them, he'd done. Ray Bradbury had done similar things for them when they were when they were young. They'd written, and he'd replied and done similar things. And I got quite cross when I, I took to to Joanna Harris, and she got to meet, meet him. She got to LA to meet her great hero. Was I, and what did she say about that? Uh, she said she, she said it was amazing. She had that dinner with the whole family, and it was just you know he's absolutely charming. And um, and I think the only I. I I guess the thing that sort of I, I, I eased it a little bit was that it wasn't just me that, um, that loved him and was inspired by him, but so many other writers. And also, uh, he died a few days after Curiosity landed on Mars. And he would have been fascinated by that yeah. because uh, The Martian Chronicles are one of his most famous series of short stories. And um, President Obama announced from the White House that, that the landing spot of Curiosity would forever be known as Bradbury's Landing. And so when you get the US president acknowledging you, that you realise that he was hugely influential as a man of letters. Mm, the uh, power of words. Absolutely. And the power of connection. You're and what I love, it's actually the other thing I love about him, which people don't know, is that um, he wrote his first short stories at uh, the local library on typewriters. You used to have to put nickels in and you got... And you got sort of 15 minutes of typing before it clicked over. Kathy, and don't get any more, ideas. You <laughs> had to put more money in. And the idea, imagine the pressure that puts yeah. you under when you're, yeah. you're penniless anyway. He's married, he married very young, and he's trying to eke out a living and sort of selling short stories. And he's literally, every, every minute that he spends typing is costing him money. Yeah. I've never heard of that. <laughs> that. That is amazing. You're in the middle of a... A very hectic book tour. Um, you're going all over the country. I've been following you on your on your website, though I do notice that last week you had two engagements: one in the Barossa Valley and one in the Clare Valley, which couldn't very have been nice. too awful, it's really. A tough job, really. But <laughs> but you are um, such a well-known author now. You're so highly respected. You're a bestseller. Why do you feel the need to do book tours? What is it about doing book tours, coming to events like this, Can that? Yeah, I mean, you don't have to. No, but uh, you got to understand that... I mean, I spend, you know, eight, nine, ten months of my year in the cabana of cruelty, you know, my office. Um, That's what your daughter calls it? Yeah, my daughter's called it that. Um, and it's sort of like... And, you, and it's a very isolating profession. And, and the beauty of festivals and touring is you get out a chance to actually meet other writers and talk to readers and it's almost like once a year they let me out of my box and I run around like a red set of puppy bounding all over <laughs> the place saying hello to everyone and then you've got me at a good time here because the book's only been out two weeks so I'm still excited by it and I'm not too tired. You know, you ask me in four weeks' time you know, and I'll be so sick so of living out of a suitcase <laughs> and, and talking about the same book over and over again. Um, but it's exciting, you know, um, 
And you know, from here, I think I go to the I go to the states after to this for a little while. And um, but I mean, that's it's a good way to sniff out new ideas I mean, as well. A few years ago, uh, I, I was seven weeks on the road, and it was punishing. And I was staying. I was in this luxury hotel in Toronto, overlooking you know uh, the lakes, one of the great lakes there. And Kate Moss, you know, the author Kate Moss, who wrote Labyrinth, most famous, she was, we were there and we were both complaining about the fact. She'd been six weeks away from her family, I'd been seven weeks. And we looked out at this view and we said, Do you know, there are tens of thousands of writers who would cut off their right arm to be where we are. We have to get over ourselves. <laughs> you know, the idea that we complain about someone taking us to the other side of the world and putting in these lovely hotels and whatnot, I mean... You have to get over yourself. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we don't feel that sorry for you, no. actually. We will come to the book in just a minute, but um, last week, or the week before, I think it was, I was in the car, and um, Richard Feidel's conversations came on the radio, and you were speaking to Richard, and I thought, oh, damn! <laughs> and um, I listened to the first bit, but then I um, vowed to myself that I would not go back and listen to the interview, because I'd just steal Richard's excellent questions. But I was intrigued to hear, right at the start of that interview, about the Canberra connection, your early Canberra connection. Absolutely. And I wonder uh, if you could just share that for, for our people <laughs> I don't know here. how many people, probably how many people listen to the Richard Feidler podcast? Oh, there's a few there. I'm no. sorry if I'm repeating myself. I spent most of my childhood in Gundagai. Um, and Canberra was obviously, it's where you had to come to buy your school shoes. It was where you had to come to buy anything of any, if you, had, you needed a television, you needed anything, Canberra was a place to come. And, um, and so... We'd make the 101... I knew it was exactly 101 miles to get to Canberra. Uh, I famously, I think I mentioned to Richard, uh, was not great as, as a traveller, uh, threw up on the way and finished up walking through... There was only old Parliament House then, wearing nothing but a pair of budgie smugglers. But they were Gundagai Tigers budgie <laughs> smugglers. You know, um, they were red and black striped. Um, and I remember we used to come to Canberra to buy our broken Easter eggs and we'd come... Because they were cheap, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, they were, yeah. My folks didn't have much money. And, uh, yeah, it was the big tree. This was the big smoke. I mean, you know, so much so that, you know, later on, you know, when I, I you know, I, I went for my first job interview at Fairfax uh, for a cadetship at Fairfax uh, and caught the North Coast Mail train down from Coffs Harbour. And I got to the foyer of the old Fairfax building in Jones Street off Broadway. And I had never been in a lift by myself before. Uh, and so I stood outside the lift, too scared to get in, because I didn't know how you, whether you had to shut the doors yourself, whether there was a button to shut the doors. Um, you know, uh, I, my parents had never owned a telephone, so I'd never got used to using a telephone. <laughs> I mean... This is, this is great training for a journalist. I know. It's so funny because when I, I got a cadetship and for the first... I remember picking up... The, I was given this task it was a cadet and I kept picking up the phone and I could not... I could not get anyone to talk to me <laughs> until finally I said, the phone's, is your phone working? And I checked their phone. Your phone's broken too. And, and I don't know, you have to dial to get an outside line. A what? Zero. An outside line. What's an outside? I thought they were all outside lines. <laughs> Oh, I'd love to talk to you more about those. We may come back to that. But let's talk a bit about um, The Secret She Keeps. We can't discuss the plot. This is what's so frustrating about talking to writers, especially of crime fiction. Um, But it's about two women, Agatha and Megan. Do you call her Megan? 
Or yeah, Megan or Meg. Meg, yeah. yeah. Um, and who they have a couple of things in common. One is that they're both expecting babies. Where did this idea come from? The, the idea for what the unfolds? Idea, um, all, all of the novels have been seated in real life events. Um, and normally stories I've covered or... And I can't actually talk again, I apologise, about the actual event. Yeah. Cause it, 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 cause It'll it, give it away. It will give it away. But it's an event that happened in 1991 in the UK... Uh, so did you remember it from 1991? Yeah, I, I, um, one of the many people that uh, I ghost wrote for, when I, my three career journalist, ghostwriter um, novelist. and novelist, uh, was a guy called Paul Britton, who's the forensic psychologist that Cracker was based upon. So he worked on the Fred and Rosemary West case and Jamie Bolger. And, and um, he worked on a particular case, which I, uh, I wrote up for him when we were working on the books. And it always stuck with me because I thought it was a great idea for a novel. And I wish I could tell you more, but if you pick up a book called The Jigsaw Man about the life and times of, um, of Paul Britton, he was known as the Jigsaw Man because of uh, I mean, brilliant mind that he had. Putting the pieces and together. And putting all the pieces together psychologically. And there's a case in that book which... Uh, involves a similar sort of crime that takes place in The Secret She Keeps. Okay, but read Michael's book first, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Um, this, in this book, you alternate between telling the story in the first person from each woman's point of view, and you have done this before in your novels, but what appeals to you about this particular way of storytelling? I think um, it's only the second time I've done it from a woman's point of view. You know, I, the Night Ferry, my third novel... Was actually no, it's not true. Piper, I did, I, I did have a voice in "Say You're Sorry," a teenage girl. Um, I think I write first person. I think it's very comfortable having been a ghostwriter. And when I say ghostwriter, someone did ask me the other night, saying, "So where do the ghost stories come in?" But no, no <laughs> I'm sure most of you know what a ghost. Yeah. I, I, I was the unseen hand behind autobiographies for the great and the good and, and the less good. Thank you, Rolf. Yes. Um, and. Um, we are going to come to that. Oh, and uh, really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, that's the one book I've taken off my shelf. <laughs> um, but um, it's all about capturing voice, and it's all, all about first person, because I have to become them when you go striding. You have to become uh, those individuals, whether it be Jerry Hallowell or Lulu or Ricky Tomlinson or Tony Bullimore or whoever you're... It's great training for being a novelist because Probably. you're in, inhabit... You, as you yeah. say, you're, in inhab you're inside someone else's head. Yeah. In the ghostwriting situation, they're real people, but in the novel situation, of course, they're the people that you've made up, so you've got even more licence. You do. But, but you learn the techniques. You, you, you know the techniques of making them not just three-dimensional but multi-dimensional. Um, uh, having so many dimensions in, and, and well, in a sense, you know, I went from, I, I was a feature writer, a uh, senior feature writer on the Mail on Sunday in London, when I finally thought, um, I met a ghostwriter, and I didn't know there was such a thing, uh, and I, this guy came in, and he'd written, he'd ghostwritten for Simon Weston, the Falklands hero that was badly burned, an iconic sort of yeah. figure from the Falklands War, and Robert Swan, the polar ice walker, and I remember saying to this ghostwriter, I mean, well, how do you do it? What do you do? And, and to me, you know, I, I went into journalism wanting to be a novelist, and I thought, but having nothing to write about, thinking journalism would get, get me the material. And I became a ghostwriter because I wanted also to know... Also, it pays. It does. Or it used to. And I also... And then I went into ghostwriting because I thought, 
you know, journalism is an incredibly exciting profession. It took me all over the world, but you're, you're doing a different story every day or every week. Did I have the patience or the discipline to spend a year working on a single project? So it was a test? It was a test to see whether, having gone from them, one of the... I mean, that's why, you know, one of the most exciting, you know, professions, one of the professions where you spend so much time in the pub in journalism, you know, and you've always got people around, you tell great stories. I mean, my... To, to, to sitting on my own again, really, and uh, not completely anymore because you have to obviously live with the subject or, or work with them and interview them. But it was a test to see whether I could do the long-form story. Whether I, It's one thing to write a 1,500-word profile on someone, but could I write 100,000 words and could I capture their voice? Uh, so it was a test. So at what point did you think, right, I've done that, I'm ready to go with my own fiction? I, I and mean, it was a suspect. Was your first one? I, I lived in a golden age of ghostwriting because um, there was a golden age of ghostwriting. Yeah, now there are so many unemployed journalists <laughs> who, are, who who basically they're, they're pricing each other out of the market. They're desperate for work, you know. But um, you know, back you know, when I was working, you know, there. I mean, you know, I mean, there are enormous amounts of money being paid for people's autobiographies, and if you were writing it, you were getting a third of everything they were getting, which made it. Far more lucrative than journalism, even far more lucrative than than writing novels would would, would normally be. I honestly thought, you know, I was making such a good living as a ghostwriter. I'd had twelve Sunday Times bestsellers. I'd sold over two million books. My name has never been on any of them. Uh, and I did thought, that annoy you? I mean, I mean, how did you feel about that? No, the only time. Or did it, it depend on who it was? The only time it annoyed me was uh, well, I. I shouldn't say this. Are we being recorded? <laughs> no, there's no one here. No, it's one of those things because you know I, that uh, you know I've won, you know I won the gold dagger. Yeah. Well, in truth, I have won another dagger, which I can't reveal the book that I won it for. <laughs> okay, right. but it wasn't fiction. It was back when they had daggers for non-fiction. Okay, okay. Um, I'm going to my... be madly googling after this. You're probably going to try. And we'll all try and work <laughs> it out. Yeah. Um, but that's slightly um, that slightly disappointed me. But yeah. and the only other time I got shocked was when they first promoted me as a novelist in the UK. They put massive posters on the tube with this sort of very moody, silhouetted man, and it, and the and the tag was you know he's sold, he's had twelve Sunday Times bestsellers and sold two million books, but you don't know his name. Meet oh. the man behind the ghost. What a great marketing campaign! Oh, hugely successful. Do you campaign. know where that term came from? Ghost ghost writing. Who came up? Who coined the term? No idea. No idea. Well, yeah. I do know though when I when I saw the film, the ghost, the ghost, saw the ghostwriter with yeah. Ewan McGregor, you know, the Robert based on the yeah. Robert Harris book. I almost demolished the TV because uh, Ewan McGregor is hired to be the ghostwriter, and he's got to completely. He says, "I've got to completely redo this autobiography of this sort of former prime minister." based on Tony Blair, obviously. Uh, and he sort of said, uh, how long do you need? And he sort of said, oh, I'd need at least three weeks. Oh. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, getting back to The Secret She Keeps, this is a book that um, seems to me anyway, you know, well, obviously, it's, it's very much targeted at women. It's very much a, a women's story. And uh, you always do, I think, you do really, you do great female characters, obviously, but um, I wondered if that, was that a really deliberate kind of slight uh, switch? No, it's, it's tar- no, I agree. This falls into that domestic noir area. It, it's very much like Leanne Moriarty and, yeah, and Jodie Picot. I, I would, probably more, less so than Leanne, I'd put it more in the territory of Girl on a Train and yeah. Gone Girl. 
that idea of the unreliable narrator, you don't know, well, both these narrators are technically unreliable in this book. You don't know who to believe when. Um, and I guess it's, uh, even though I've had the idea for, for, for a lot of years, you know, uh, the reason I had the idea of, it wasn't until I realised I had to t have two voices that I realised I could make the idea work, have the two different characters uh, tell it. Um, but uh, I guess it was all, it was partly a reflection of, I, and, and look, I you know, I, I was an enormous fan of Gone Girl. I thought Gone Girl was an amazing book. Go on a train I really struggle with. Uh, and I can understand why it was so successful and people loved it. Um, but a part of me thought, okay, I'm going to have a crack at doing that. Then we had all the girl books. I mean, this could have been The Pregnant Girl, but I'm glad, oh, you, didn't, no, I'm don't glad worry. you didn't do I, that. I, no, I guarantee that when it came down to titles, I sort of said, you are not putting girl on this yeah, title. thank you. You know, um, I did have another title. It was called Expecting when I was writing it. <laughs> um, but no, I think... Um, I didn't set out... All my, as you say, all my books have been heavily associated with family and family dynamics and often fatherhood and having children... And uh, that's a strong part of it. Mm. Um, this one, I promised myself after I wrote The Night Parade that I would, never talk, I would never write another book from a female perspective because anyone who's involved in, in, in writing knows that women are the great readers of fiction. I'm not saying men don't read fiction, they love fiction, but they often men prefer non-fiction. They prefer you know, histories and things like that, whereas women tend to absolutely mm. love, um, love this style of fiction. And you get something wrong... And it's a big question mark. You know, even now, it's a huge, big, much bigger issue now about cultural appropriation, but also gender appropriation. Should a man write as a woman? Can a man write as a woman? Uh, I Have you had that put to you? Oh yeah. You know, and uh, in your response, I had. Well, it's funny when I wrote the Night Fairy, which again was told from the eyes through the eyes of a 28-year-old Anglo-Indian policewoman. It was it was shortlisted for the Steel Dag in the UK and got you know some wonderful sort of reviews. But there was one reviewer from the Glasgow Herald uh, who said that this was so obviously a man pretending to be a woman and it was a man, uh, the author was a man with a breast fetish. <laughs> and I went back through, I was horrified, I went back <laughs> through the book and there were indeed six references to breasts. There was a vehicle ferry where five trucks were parked abreast. <laughs> there was someone that had a name tag on a breast pocket so someone ate poached chicken breasts. Someone had a police secret microphone taped between uh, her breasts. And there, was a, and there was one, one reference... To an actual breast. To an actual breast that was, that was stroked during foreplay, which is clearly where I made my mistake. There was just far too much foreplay <laughs> in that book. <laughs> um, and, um, and, I'm, and, yeah, it's, it's an interesting area about mm. whether... And particularly this book is a book about... Uh, pregnancy and childlessness and infertility and all sorts of those issues, which are deeply female. I, I, don't, that, I don't think that precludes men from really enjoying the story because it's a cracking yeah. mystery at the heart yeah. of it. But these are deeply female issues and there are people out there that you know, would say that... Um, I mean, I personally think, I mean, I, as a writer, I've got every right to do that as a novelist. So I get it wrong, by all means, criticise me, but don't tell me I can't do it because what hope have we ever got of achieving true equality... You know, if you don't allow men to at least try to empathise and understand what it's like to be mm. a woman and to experience those things, that childbirth and pregnancy and all that, if you don't allow a man to do that, or vice versa, I mean, how can we ever hope to? So for your, your research for that, did you base it on um, what you knew from what your uh, wife had experienced through 
her her pregnancies because you have three daughters. Yeah. Did you bounce ideas off, off um, your no, wife? Well, or it was a mixture. I mean, it was sort of being surrounded by women mm. um, helps. You know, <laughs> I think there are only two males in the row bottom household, myself and the cat, and we've both been spayed. Uh, <laughs> and so um, uh, there was that. There was... Uh, Having ghostwritten for people like Lulu uh, and Jerry Halliwell and Margaret Humphreys, the Nottingham social worker that uncovered the child migrant scandal, um, which was made into the film Orange and Sunshine, um, that book. Um, so I'd ghosted for about five women and captured their voices. I'm surrounded by women. And then I'd done the night ferry uh, and then I just devoured mummy blogs and I talked to mothers groups and I talked to pregnant women mm. and I eavesdropped on conversations <laughs> and I um and then I gave it to every woman I knew of every age those with children those without those who had tried and failed whatever everyone and said I want you to read this and if it, there is any discordant note if at any point you feel as though I have not captured these characters the way I should have done that, that my maleness is showing through um, and did you have to change much? Not at all, actually. Yeah. I do say, I love telling the story that my... Um, I've got to understand where I'm coming from. My youngest daughter, who's now 17, but when she was about seven, we were, <laughs> we were out at McDonald's or something like that, and she said to me, you're not like, you're not like normal dads, are you, Dad? <laughs> I said, in what way? She said, well, you don't go off to the office and, you know, like normal dads. I go, no, no, that's true. I work from home. And said, and you, you don't sort of play rugby and go surfing and, and said, no, and you don't go and have a beer after work with your mates and saying, no, no, not often. Uh, he said, you're a bit of a girly man, aren't you, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, that probably sums me up. <laughs> uh, another, another thing about um, the book, it's set in London, um, but I could see it playing out in Paddington or Mossman or, or Marnica or Braddon. That would be great. Um, so why London? I mean, the Joe O'Loughlin series is yeah. obviously set in England. You have huge readership in, in Britain as well as in Australia and, and, um, and the US. But why did this one have to be set in London? It didn't really. Um, it's, a bit like, it's a bit like Life or Death, the, the standalone that won the, the dagger. I mean, the, that was based upon a two-paragraph story that I read in the Sydney Morning Herald in 1995 about a man who escaped from prison the day before he was due to be released. And I remember thinking about whether I should set that one in Australia because obviously that's where the idea came yeah. from. And um, you've got to laugh at this one. And I finally decided that I really needed a setting for that where there was enormous political corruption uh, and... Um, <laughs> You know, where you had sort of corrupt politicians and police officers and judges and whatnot. And I just didn't think New South Wales had that. <laughs> <laughs> when I began working on it, little did I know. So it's um, Queensland. You know, that's true. And, um, <laughs> and it was actually a publisher that said to me that... that um, because that was sort of... A, even though it, it opens, like it's got a real Shawshank Redemption feel. It's got mm. a, a prison break at the very opening of it. And that America has a great tradition of prison-based mm. novels like Shawshank Redemption or um, The Green Mile and things like that. And there was a publisher that said, you know, because I, I thought my British publishers what it set in Britain and my Americans what it set in America. In fact, my British publisher said, you should set that in America. And why didn't I set this in Australia? Do you know what didn't... I think probably more so I was worried that people that knew me, families and women and whatnot, would think that I'd based it upon... Them. Them. You know, right. uh, and the characters on them, and 
Um, there's another issue as well. When I lived in England, I could remember Australia with an incredible sort of clarity. Because and of that distance? The distance. It's like you're homesick, and yeah. so you, you, you can smell the eucalypts, and you can, you can feel the salt water drying on your skin. Mm. And I think it's why, I mean, all, you know, without putting myself in anywhere in the company of the great Irish writers, you know, um, but the great, you know, Beckett and Behan and, and Joyce wrote from outside of Ireland, you know, they, but they wrote about Ireland, and they felt that something about that distance creates enormous clarity. And so when I lived in London, I, I wrote the great Australian unpublished novel, probably the greatest ever Australian unpublished novel. Still unpublished, but it's still in the bottom drawer. Um, Bring it but, out. But when I, uh, no, I get asked all the time, that yeah. lawyers. Um, uh, and, but when I came back to Australia, I had that similar feeling about London and my memories yeah. of, uh, of London. I, I felt I could write about the UK from that distance. Okay. And also, well, I should also say the reason I began my career was... I did, when I wrote that great Australian unpublished novel, did I mention it was the greatest? Mm. Okay, and, um, um, uh, it almost got published by Penguin Heinemann in, in the UK. I missed out by a single vote in a final publishing meeting. Was this before The Suspect? Oh, yeah. This was 20, ah. 20 years before. Before your ghostwriting? Yeah, this is before ghostwriting. This ah. is just... I met... The agent that got me ghostwriting was the agent that I showed this novel to. Right. And he took it out there and... I needed nine votes in this publishing meeting. I got eight, and they came to me afterwards. It was set in a small fishing town in, uh, in New South Wales, this novel. And they told me, and I said, why, why didn't I get the vote? And, and he said, if you had set that same story in England, Ireland, Scotland, or Wales, we would have published it in a heartbeat. But because you set it in it's Australia... It's a harsh lesson. It's, and, and so... And I think the world's changed a lot since yeah. then. People are willing to read books, from, as they, and they are, from all over the world... But in the back of my mind, you know, ten years later when I sat down to... when I had that space between, you know, ghost-written projects, you know, and going back to that, I didn't answer your original question. I honestly thought I would write a novel. It would sell eight copies. My mother would buy six of them and I would spend the rest of my career as a ghostwriter. Yeah. You know, I had no idea I was going to make a living out of, out of um, writing novels. And, um, but in the back of my mind when I wrote that 117 pages of The Suspect, a part manuscript, I thought, well, the Australian novel didn't get up, so this time I'm going to set a book in the UK and see if that makes a difference. And it triggered a bidding war at the London Book Fair and, and the rest is sort of history. Mm, and those posters yeah. on the underground. Yeah. yeah. That must have been such a thrill. Um, it was actually nerve-wracking. It's really, when you've written 15 books for other people and your name's not on them, the very first time you see your name on the book, your, my first reaction was, they have made a terrible mistake. Someone has gone make. They put my name on it. They they, they can't do that. You know, um, I actually thought they'd made. I, I was really uncomfortable. So when did you start feeling okay about it? Um, I After guess the, the first time. I, the first or? time I saw it was in Ireland, and then the Nether- I, I, I was doing a, a world tour, and, and so I was going to places and seeing my name on a book, and people were asking me about it, and um, and so I'd never been. I'd never given an interview about a book I'd written because I was always the unseen hand. Other people did that. Mm. I mean, the reviews still hurt. You read the reviews, even though if you go straight there, because you want to know you, they're giving <laughs> you great reviews uh, or not, but certainly you, know, you want the great ones. Um, and uh, it took me a long while to get used to the fact that my name was on something. Mm. I know that um, uh, my ABC colleague, Michael Brissenden, has just... He's just 
published his novel, yeah, yeah, it's just written his, his novel. And Tony I, Jones has written a, a crime novel as well. Oh, watch out! <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Michael, and I know he won't. I know he won't mind me saying this, but he um, he posted a picture on his Facebook page of seeing his novel at the airport bookshop, and uh, along with well, it was a shelf below Michael Connolly's crime book, latest crime book. I saw but, that today, yeah, yeah. but he was, you know, he was so thrilled. And, oh, and, and so you would be. So do you still get a buzz when you see your books in stores? I still get... Oh, look, I honestly didn't think I'd write, you know, one... I, I, I was hoping to get one novel published. And people sort of, they imagined that I've planned these sort of the series. That Joe, uh, I had no idea that Joe Lockham would go past one book, let alone... You know, have been in, in you know in in seven, and so yeah, it, I still pinch myself. It's a bit like I get upset when people. I get upset when I hear writers say that writing is hard. Okay, there are tough days, but raising a disabled child is hard. There are, I mean, there are countless things that are harder than what I. I, I am so privileged to do what I w- always wanted to do. The idea that even in, in you know, and you walk, look out there at the bookshop, look at this library the tens of thousands of not only their books but every podcast you've never seen every film you've never seen there are so many things that compete for your precious time and your precious leisure time the idea that someone would choose a story that i wrote and either pay money or borrow it and devote the 14 hours that's hugely humbling you know you can't you just got to say Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a bit about um, Joe, Joe O'Loughlin, who I'm sure most people here would know, but Joe is the protagonist in a whole series of your novels. He's a clinical psychologist. He has Parkinson's disease. As you say, at the start, you thought it would be a one-off novel, but it's developed into a, a fabulous series, and we learn so much about Joe and his family. Um, in the most recent Joe novel, yes. um, Close Your Eyes. Don't give away the ending. <laughs> I, I, no, this is, this is the thing. I'm sure everyone who's read that book wants to ask you, you as I do, whisper, and I'm not... Whisper it in my ear later. I, I, I'm, I won't, I'm not going to go there, of course. But um, what's happening with Joe? Where's Joe up to? Where are you up to with Joe? I'm almost finished a new Joe book, um, which Excellent. will be out this time next year. i give you a little taster for those who... Um, and I don't know how many people... How many people here have read a Joe O'Loughlin book? Okay, <laughs> and so the pe- people here who haven't, I'm sorry, but he's a, he's, he's a clinical psychologist. He's got a brilliant mind but a crumbling body. So he's sort of the antithesis of Jack Reacher or Jason Bourne or James Bond. You know, he's a man that's always going to have to outthink people. Um, and, um, but in the new book, uh, Joe is summoned to hospital... <laughs> at three o'clock in the morning because his father, who Joe was always referred to as God's personal physician in waiting, um, <laughs> his father has been uh, uh, injured in either an attack or an accident and he, he's um, had to undergo brain surgery and Joe immediately said, where's my mother? And your mother's with him in, in the ICU. Uh, and so Joe rushes to the hospital gets to the ICU and there's a strange woman beside the bed and he says who are you? And she says, I'm his other wife. Oh, <laughs> okay. And so the book is to be called <laughs> The Other Wife. The Other Wife, right. And when's that you out? This time next year. Right. So do you have a um, a, a, a regular way of working? I, I, I read a, a profile on Michael Connolly. He says he starts a book every November. Uh, I'm probably going to get it wrong, but towards the end of the year, and it comes out the following year in November, perfectly timed for the Christmas rush. Yeah. Do you... Do that sort of thing? Um, no, actually, this this one. The reason 
that this one, it's been two years since my last book, was to get my publishing schedules around the world to line up. Because what was happening is my, my American edition was coming out eight months after the UK-Australian edition. And as anyone will know, that if you tell a reader that they have to wait eight months for something that they know is already out somewhere in the world, they will find some way of getting it legally or illegally. Yeah. But it, was, um, it, it meant that the only way to stop that was to publish... But you have been able to do that. Yeah. So this one, The Secret Sketch, was published on the same day right across the English-speaking world. Uh, and that's the first time I've managed to, to sort of tee that up. Um, now, I... Um, uh, look, I aim to do... I will be doing sort of hopefully a book a year. I finish every book convinced that I will never write again, that I've run out of ideas, one-liners, descriptions... I will go, I'll press send and I'll go into my wife and say, that's it, I'm going to have to get a proper job. I'm empty, I'm a hollow man, there's nothing left in the tank. And she'll just hum and Yeah, she away. hums and ahs and says, and until I get on her nerves, where I keep wandering around complaining, she says, go out to your office, clean it up. So I go out to the cabana of cruelty and uh, she'll find me two hours later and she'll go, what are you doing? And I'll say, I've just had an idea. <laughs> so literally within hours of finishing one... I'll start another. But I don't have a draw flow ideas. I will often finish a book with absolutely no idea. But you don't sit down. You don't say, right, I'm going to sit down this day and start this new book and I'm going to finish it in six months or... No, I just sort of... I don't plot or, the books you, in advance. Do you have so just a pattern that's evolved naturally? Yeah, I just sort of... Oh, look, I spent my... Well, having wanted to be a writer since I was 11, I collected every article and ever written or, that I read on writers. And I would read about what time they started writing, what they had for breakfast, what, where they faced their desk, to the window, away from the window, what was their favourite tipple, you know. Um, you know, I, I can tell you things. I mean, you know, um, Mark Twain used to get his wife to do the housework naked because it inspired him. You know, um, I have suggested <laughs> have you that. tried that? I did. I've got the bruises to prove it. Um, <laughs> the, um, the, uh, and so, you know, I, know, I know about the writers that would only write standing up, the writers that would faint, Voltaire would faint to get rid of dinner guests he didn't like, you know. I, I've collected sort of material on writers my entire life yeah. thinking that there was a formula and, of course, then discovered there is no formula. You, you, you simply, as Hemingway said, you sit down at the typewriter and bleed. Um, but, no, um, so I, I just start, start in the morning and I start writing on a good day. I'll write a 1,000 words. Uh, sometimes I will throw all of those away the next day and if I can get a single line... Uh, and I remember that opened up in the very first novel, The Suspect. I remember writing a thousand words the first day and I threw it all away, but one line remained and it was the line that I got most asked about. It was when Joe Lockman's on the roof of a hospital, tried to talk a young cancer patient down who wants to jump and he describes his cancer pa patient, Malcolm. He said he's wearing, he's wearing a woolen, woolen hat or a woolen beanie because chemotherapy is a cruel hairdresser. Huh. And I said, that was a line that remained, you know. And little moments like that where you sort of think, hey, I might be able to do this, you know. Um, but it's just, it's like, because I don't plot, it's like climbing a mountain. Every time I start, I stare at that rock face and I begin climbing and because I don't plot in advance, I have no idea how, that, how high that sucker is and I just keep going and hope there's a top. So you don't plot in advance? No. I just hope that somewhere up there... I'll reach an ending that, um, and, the, and the view will be great. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about um, what people are calling the golden age of television? Because um, we've just seen the huge success, for example, of Big Little Lies, Leanne Moriarty's book, and it was, it was, so, it was so well done. 
though they changed the location to, to yeah, the yeah. US. Um, and the secret she keeps, that's, you, you can see that as a really great, well-done um, miniseries. Have, they, they come sniffing around your door for yeah, that? No, yeah, no, at the moment I've got... The Germans have made four films out of their Joe Locken books, yeah. and they've got a fifth on the way now, um, which I was sort of hoping would turn up on SBS. But there's a... Life or Death is... Um, well, Life or Death is funny. It was bought... The rights were bought by the company that did the Lego movie. Uh, and so... And they, were, and they decided to, to give the script to uh, a relatively unknown scriptwriter, you know, who'd, who'd had success writing a script for a film called Whiplash. Uh, his name's Damien Chazelle. And so he was merrily writing the, the script for Life or Death and, and decided he'd just put it aside to do a little project called La La Land, <laughs> which, he, which he wrote and directed. And, of course, Damien Chazelle has now yeah, become yeah, the yeah, hottest, hottest writer-director in yeah. Hollywood. And so Life or Death is not on his radar anymore. Um, but it's with a, uh, a brilliant um, South Korean director who's done a few English language things like Stoker. But is, is that for a f- that's for a film? That's for a film. There was Did a they TV ask series. you if you were interested in screenwriting it yourself? Uh, I talked to Sarah Waters, has done the script for The, ha- uh, the Handmaid, which is just out. Yeah. And so I'm a script consultant. I will be one of the writers on it, but I didn't want to be the sole writer on it. Um, there is a TV series planned. The reason I, I'm always read for, for, for the Joe Lachlan, oh. a long-form TV series. Yeah. Um, it's, done, it's being planned by the same company that did Jack Irish. So it's a joint British, German, Australian, but it, the UK will take the lead, whereas Jack Irish, the Australians, took the lead. Yeah. Um, it's early days. I mean, if I tell you that, you know, that first ghostwritten book, took 17 years to get made into um, Orange and Sunshine. Mm. I know not to hold my breath. <laughs> um, but uh, the script is being written for, for the, uh, a Joe Locke, and they will be, I think they're looking at eight episodes per book to do that long. And, it, and you know, you're absolutely right, it's a golden age mm. of um, Do they have, TV or writing. do you have in mind who you'd like, you must, but are you going oh, to tell us? Oh, I used us? to have in mind, because yeah. the, the rights were sold who really would, early on. Joe? Uh, and, well, I, it's had to change because the very first person I had in mind for Joe um, couldn't possibly do it anymore because he was then a relatively unknown actor called Damien Lewis, you know, who has obviously become huge with Homeland and Billions and yeah. he's a brilliant British actor. Um, and and my, my Vincent Ruiz character has always been the same. I've always thought that Ray Winston would do a brilliant job playing yeah. the Vincent Ruiz character. Um, but I don't know who... I have one... In my contract, I put one stipulation. It's so funny. I said, you will not cast a former soap opera star. <laughs> oh? Why? Well, because I just hate it when they put some sort of, you know, EastEnders star thinking this will be his vehicle. Oh, his you know, vehicle, yes. His vehicle. His big and break. Sort of, you know, from a big break into, you know... Yeah. I, um, I think nowadays it's great because they, they're pulling in really big-name actors are, are willing mm. to, you know, we saw that with True Detective and, yes. and The Wire. I mean, hugely successful um, film actors are willing to come back and work in TV because that's where the best writing has been. Yeah, done. yeah. And um, would you be interested in writing yourself for television? Uh, I get approached... It's one of the only things you haven't done. Yeah, no, I, ha- I get approached... The ABC's approached me a few times about doing... Um, perhaps getting involved in doing a sort of an Australian true detective style of drama. Um, and, look, partly it interests me, but another part, it's really... Even though I am Australian, you know, and I love this country, it's where my children were born, um, it's sort of, as a writer, I'm 
you know, like the Germans feel as they own as they as though they own me because that's one of my biggest markets, you know. And in the UK because my, they feel mm. as they and so to turn around to suddenly to all of my other publishers and say, oh, by the way, I won't be writing a book for the next year or two. I'm going to be working on a TV series in Australia. Yeah. You've got to sort of man, you know massage the disappointment that you're going to. Course, a lot of other people. Around yeah, and it's not, it's, it's not, it's letting down your publishers, but it's letting down your readers. Exactly. Yeah. So the re- I mean, you're having to to tell them there won't be any any books. So it's a sort of you weigh that up, and it's also, um, and, and not that it ever influences a writer ever, or it shouldn't do, but if you are if you are really fortunate to be successful, you finish up being on top of a pyramid. And I do know a writer, not a writer in the UK that announced very last minute that they couldn't... A very successful writer weren't going to deliver a book in that November slot for Christmas. And two or three people lost their jobs at a publishing house because the turnover of that single book was so great. It could be the entire Christmas bonus for a publishing house could be gone because one author doesn't deliver, you know. Um, And you realise that that's... I mean, that's a real rarity and you're not influenced by it, but Mm. it's in the background. Yeah, but then you have people like George R. R. Martin who says, I'm not going to be... Of course, But, yeah. you know, he's coming from a certain position. Um, I think we might... Because I know that people here will have questions for you too and, and I'm hogging oh, all the questions. So um, I think Lindsay's got a microphone there. So we've got two microphones walking ar- someone's moving got to put around. Hand, someone's got to put a hand up. Though, yeah, first. so who'd like who's to go right? first? Oh, someone's okay. always got to be a Down first. Here. Hello, microphone's coming. And yes. It, Oh, no, we need oh, no, it. We, we need for recording. And if someone else it. puts their hand up quickly, they can get the second microphone yeah. for, for next. Yeah, hi, Michael. Hello. My name's Tracy. I just want to know, do you keep an actual file for all those words that you throw away? <laughs> because you don't actually throw them away, do you? It's really interesting. I do throw a lot of words away because I don't plot in advance. I have a scene with Joe O'Loughlin, one of my, my favourite scene I've ever written, and I have never managed to get it in a book. And I have opened books with this scene and it gets pushed further and further back and it drops off. I have now, I'm promising myself that it will be the last scene that I ever write in dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you never, throw, you never throw stuff away. But by the same token, you, you do forget you've got material there. Or I'm always amazed at how well readers remember things because I've, I've started it. I, I started a novel at one point and I, I had great plans that... Joe was going to uh, investigate, you know, his, um, his estranged wife, then Julianne. She was going to desperately need his help because something happened to her father. So I wrote 20,000 words and w- went back and read the first novel and saw that, that Julianne's father committed suicide when she was 12. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I think sometimes my readers have a better memory for these things than I do. But it's like, um, you know, when people used to type on paper back in the olden days, and um, we've all seen it in the movies, you know, they rip it out of the typewriter, screw it up, throw it in the waste paper basket, and then half an hour later go and crawl through and yeah. go, oh, this was, this was it. If you delete something on the computer, because um, I'm presuming you write on a computer. Yeah, but then you also get in the advantage of that, you get the 12 different drafts. Like I've got oh. sort of libraries come to you and they want your, your papers and yeah. you go back and think, well, you've got the 12 different versions of it and all of it's there because you've saved each draft on, on computer. Nice. You know, okay. um, so there's always a version there. And you're very anyone that's savvy would never start changing a version if they hadn't saved it and kept that there and, gone, and sort of gone draft two or draft three or draft right. four. Okay. Um, our next question. God, aren't they a shy bunch? God. There must be a question there. Yes. 
We've got a microphone coming from this end. Hi, my name's Rowan. I'm just wondering how long you're going to be able to continue with Joe O'Loughlin considering his medical condition. I notice yeah, it deteriorating no, each book. Yeah, but no, it's funny. You're right. I created a use-by date with Joe O'Loughlin when I, put, when I gave him early onset Parkinson's in The Suspect. And as I mentioned earlier, I never intended he was going to be more than a one-off character. And he was only a minor character in the second novel. He wasn't in the third novel. I brought him back for Shatter because uh, it was a perfect story for a psychologist to tell. Um, and I, I joked that I had to keep writing him after that because my wife wouldn't sleep with him unless I sorted out his personal life, um, <laughs> which I haven't managed to do yet. Um, um, but no, each book is potentially the last, you know, and, um, and for those people who have read or hopefully you'll, you'll read The Secret She Keeps, there's a new psychologist introduced in that mm. called Cyrus Haven who's got a very interesting backstory. And I know my American publishers have already sort of sounded me out saying he would be great to carry on. And so, Had you already thought that yourself? No, honestly, no, I, this is shameless. The reason that... I, 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 Joe was in this book for a while when I first wrote the first draft. In The Secret She in Keeps. In The Secret She Keeps. Ah. And, uh, and my agent came to me and said, you know, we've already sold the TV and film rights to Joe. If you put another psychologist in, we can sell a new lot. <laughs> 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 typical agents. Typical agents. <laughs> you know, and... Um, but no, I, lo- I thought, oh, do I really want to... But then I loved the backstory I created mm. for him. Mm. You know, he's this man who, whose entire family, when he was a teenager, his entire family um, uh, were killed by his, his older brother. Um, and he came home from soccer practice to, to find his family dead. You know, and that's the reason he became a psychologist. And I think there's something in him. Now, I may... And that's the reason why your daughters come up with names <laughs> for your writing I know, studio. I know. Although, Citadel of Cruelty. And, yeah, I, look, I give myself options because, as I said, I never planned it. Even in, you know, in, the, in the new book or in the last book, Charlie, Joe's eldest daughter, announces she wanted to study psychology. And so I've left it open to potentially have a situation where I might leave Joe for a book or two and then wait for Charlie to have almost have graduated and have got where she needs to get to and then bring her back in as a character and have Joe mentoring her. Um, but I did create a, you know, I created a use-by date for him and, um, and, you know, for people that want to ask, you know, you can't ask me why I entered the last book the way I did, um, the la- Close Your Eyes, the last Joe book, but one of the reasons is because um, I don't want to write the same book twice. Uh, every one of my books I've tried to make incredibly mm. unique, whether they be standalones or the Joe O'Loughlin books. Sometimes they're third person, sometimes Joe's first person, sometimes they've got multiple voices. Every one I've tried to make different. I think one of the great failings of, of people who write series, and, and there are writers that don't fall into the trap, but uh, one of the failings is that they tend to write the same book over and over, and you'll have readers, even though they might love that book, they might, it might be like putting on their favourite pair of slippers and sitting in their favourite armchair. When you ask them afterwards, they'll go, yeah, but it was a bit like the last one. You know, um, I want to avoid that. The moment I write the same book twice, I want someone to tap me on the shoulder and say, Michael, time's up. You know, move on, retire now, or, or uh, you know, that's the aim to... I want to keep excited. When I was a ghostwriter, I got the opportunity to look at the world through a new set of eyes every time I sat down. And when I write a new novel, I want to be just as excited. I want to be creating something new that I haven't done before and uh, that makes it gets my sort of creative juices going. Yeah, excellent. Um, question at the back. 
um, I was going to ask that Joe O'Loughlin question, but I've got a backup question, <laughs> and it's just a um, more a, a sort of curiosity. Um, do you have a sense as to why um, you've become so popular in Germany? Why? Well, uh, not really. It's really. I mean, it's it's this question about why why does anything take? I mean, there, you know, we suddenly hear stories about suddenly some band is huge in Japan, and you wonder why that is. And uh, I think my first three novels in in Germany got incredibly re well reviewed, and, and I was shortlisted for an award or two, but hardly sold a copy. And they took a they took a huge risk, really. They toured me in Germany for my fourth book, which is very expensive because you tour with an actor, often a really well-known actor that does your readings for you, and an interviewer, mm. an interpreter. An interpreter, and, yeah. And so you're touring with, and a publicist, and so it's a huge expense to take you to all these cities and do it. Um, and I honestly believe that first trip, that the actor was so big, people were coming along to see the actor. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was a real... He was the Hugh Jackman of Germany. I, I had a... Miss Playboy October 2011 in the front row. And I, I mean, she was nowhere near as attractive as the ladies here. But the idea that she came, she came along to one of my events, she obviously came along to see, to see Ralph. Although what I did do in that book, um, Ralph, he could have, he's a very handsome young guy, his name's Ralph Meyer, he could have got laid every night, okay? But I made him read the psychopath scenes in Shatter. <laughs> and... By the time about five cities into this tour, he said to me, Michael, perhaps, perhaps tonight I could read the Joel Lachlan scenes. I'm going, no, Ralph, you do the psychopaths <laughs> so well. So well you know? <laughs> and there was, there wasn't a woman in the place that wanted to go home with him after he'd read those scenes. <laughs> um, do we have another question from the floor? Yeah, thanks. Um, my question's sort of uh, about crime novels written, say, in the 80s and then crime novels written today. And um, I'm reminded of a tour that Australian crime writer Barry Maitland did yeah. and he, he, I asked a similar question and it was about the level of violence and description that uh, a lot of crime novels have today whereby if you look at crime novels written 20, 30 years ago, that level of description is much more muted. And he said that... Um, and I'm just asking you whether you agree or have yeah. a different view. He said that um, writers are under pressure to put more violence and description um, and, you know, keep yeah. pushing the envelope even further because the whole media, whether it's movies or um, TV series or um, other novels, they're getting that way that they're sort of competing. Yeah. Um, and and do you, is there a pressure to, no, to write I, that way? I don't think there's a pressure. I certainly agree with him that, you know, there's no doubt that TV and movies and anyone that's watched you know, any of the sort of Netflix series, you know, there's suddenly... They, the violence is much more graphic and in your face than it, than it, than it uh, has ever been before. So I think generally community sensibilities and, and, the, and the, have shifted a little bit. People are willing to accept that more graphic. Although, I mean, I still... I mean, I remember when I wrote a book uh, called Say You're Sorry, I, I had people complain to me about a scene in that book where they claimed that I had described uh, a teenage girl being mutilated. And, and I said, I, I, I didn't. I said, yes, she did. I was disgusted by that scene. And I'll go, no, you go back and read it. I didn't describe that at all. And everything they had described was in their imagination. I had just had people reacting to what they saw but didn't describe what they saw. But in their imaginations, they thought that 
that they were horrified because I'd create. And that's again that beauty of someone like Alfred Hitchcock was so brilliant at creating suspense without putting it on camera, so to speak. So I, I firmly believe that the best and most powerful stuff is obviously off camera. It's people's reactions rather than physically describing the violence. Mm. You know, um, I would never physically describe uh, the rape or the torture or the murder of someone. You know. Uh, you see the aftermath, you see the shock, you see the tears, you see that, and people, I let people's reason's imagination go, but I wouldn't physically describe it. And I know writers like Joe Nesbo a few books ago thought, decided he was going to push the envelope and see how far he could go, and he described a graphic torture scene, and he got so much pushback from reviewers and, and fans, he realised he'd gone too far. I would never, I would never have experimented that way. Um, I do know, though, that the, um, the most uh, complaints I've ever had, um, and I was warned by Peter Temple this would be the case, that um, when Peter said to me that uh, we could boil a baby and eat it with truffles, and that would be okay, but heaven help you if you harm a family pet. <laughs> and so in a book called Bleed for Me, there is a dog meets a grizzly end, and I had hate mail. My mother sent me hate mail. <laughs> My mother demanded I change it. She said I spent the entire book thinking the cat was going to be next. You know, um, and so I think it does come down. No, I think the, you know, we, ha- we are watching movies and TV, you know, and it's like the watershed hours and what's allowable you know, in terms of nudity and violence. You know, it has changed over, since nine, in the last 30 years. Uh, I, I get angry when I, I see some crime novels, though, that are violent for the sheer sake of being violent. I mean, if you read something as beautifully written as Science of the Lambs, which is one of the most beautifully written books, you know, uh, Thomas Harris can get away with it because he's a wonderful writer, but if if you find a writer who's trying to make up for their limitations as a writer by just making the content incredibly graphic, that I, I, I don't agree with. Mm, okay, we've reached um, seven o'clock. I'll, have you got a question? Yes. yes. Let's make this a final question. Oh, two questions. Oh, I'm oh, okay. so sorry. Okay, let's two make more. two two quick questions and then. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Kathy. Right. Michael, you mentioned that at the start of your career, you read everything you could on writers and writing. Uh, I've just been reading Stephen King's book called On Writing. It's great. Yeah, yeah. and mm. he said he wrote that. Because on tours, like when you're doing book tours, people ask you about other things, like where he got his ideas from, but never about the language. So can I ask you, do you have any thoughts, any tips on writing? And are you likely to write about writing? Um, oh, thanks, Laurie. For, um, I mean, Stephen King, it's funny, I don't know which edition, if you actually look, when you get to the end of that book and look at the reading list, Stephen King's got two of my books now on that, on that reading list. He's actually... Um, been incredibly generous. Um, He's I think, a massive fan of yours. Yeah, and uh, I think I don't. I'm not a lover of three-word slogans for all sorts of reasons. <laughs> um, but if 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 I were to have one, it would be to make them care. And so, is to me, it's create compelling characters that readers care about. Now, even if they, you then do terrible things to them, that's why the reader will stay with you. Um, uh, and that would be one of my, if I, if I go sum up my major piece of advice, it would be that. Uh, and, my, and that's about empathy. It's about empathy. It's about, it's about um, creating, you know, 
the, I mean, the readers will keep turning the pages if they, if they fall in love with your characters. And, they, and it might not necessarily be because they're nice people. It could be just because they're loathsome, but they, they, they're just committed to knowing. You know, um, the other thing is to... Uh, and that, I think, it goes back to my work with Paul Britton, um, the psychologist who, who Cracker was based upon. The, uh, he showed me that all of... Even someone like Fred West, you know, three generations of incest ran through Fred West's family, that... that no one is just born, or very rarely someone born evil. That, that if you can give it, if in your villains, they must have motives that are understandable. They must have come. Society gets the monsters it deserves. They've come from somewhere. Um, and but the main one is, if you're interested in writing, you write and you write and you write. And when you're sick of writing, you write some more. <laughs> and if you still have any energy left, you read. And the thing with you do when you read, and is I mean, my wife is convinced that I. I don't enjoy books anymore because when I read a book, I just take it apart. You know, I, I, I can see what the writer's trying to do. Um, and I can see at times where it could have been better, I think, if they'd done this there or this there. But the books I look forward to and the books that frustrate me are the ones that are so beautiful and seamless. I can't get my fingers into... I can't see. They're so perfect. I can't see how they were made. And the stitching's hidden. Yeah, and, and, and part of it depresses me because I think, God, I'm never going to be that good. You know? uh, and another part of it, it sort of... In many ways, I'm inspired by the books that aren't so good, that I can see how they could have been better. That inspires me, right? Because the perfect ones just make me want to weep. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, question? Oh, hello, my name is Christine. I'm asking a question on behalf of my daughter-in-law, Caroline. She grew up in Bath. Okay. She wants to know, did you live in Wellow? Because she's very impressed with your local knowledge. <laughs> Do you know what? <laughs> she said she should have known, she, sure she should know your characters because she went to Oldfield Girls School about the same time. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, I went to, uh, I, got a, I got an email a few years ago from the publican at the Fox and Badger pub in Wellow, which is just a few miles outside of Bath. And she said, have you ever been in our pub? And I said, yeah, yeah. I said, I said I've had the ploughmans and I've had, you know, I mentioned what was on the menu. And she said, why didn't you introduce yourself? And I sort of said, well, well, I wouldn't, would I? You know, she said, well, we only discovered your book when an Australian couple came through and they were using Shatter as their tour guide to the West Country. <laughs> and, and I said, you're kidding me. And, and, and then she said, no, no, but when, when you come back, will you, will you come down and visit us? So when I went back to England next, I arranged to go down there and the local newspaper got a cherry picker so they could get high enough to shoot down onto the pub because the whole village came out. I'm convinced, I mean, they'd all read me, I'm convinced there was one book nailed to the bar and they used to just go in and order a pint and read the one book. <laughs> but they'd all read me. Uh, and the entire village came out and there's now a corner in the Fox and Badger. There's a corner with, it's my corner. I don't know who I took over from in that corner. But there's a post sign poster and uh, for a while there they were convinced that I was going to put them on the map a bit like... Um, James Herriot had put a particular town on the map in Yorkshire with, um, with his books, but um, the BBC series never quite made it to Wellow. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, thank you so much. I was going to ask you um, what the highlight of your writing career has been so far, but I think that would have to be one of them, so <laughs> we might leave it there. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks, Thank you.